Digital Drift, episode 19. Recorded Monday, 10th of March, 2014. X-Men Origins, Wolverine. All the horrible things in your life. The father. The wars. Knowing that the woman you loved was hunted down. Go away. Putting together a special team. With special privileges. Join me, but you will have your revenge. I want new ones. And what do you want them to say? Wolverine. Embrace the other side. I think he heard you. Don't worry, we'll stop him. You just spent half a billion dollars making him indestructible. I know who you are, Gambit. You even know how to kill me. I'm gonna cut your head off. See if that works. <laughs> We're back to review the fourth X-Men movie and first of what's likely to be numerous solo Wolverine outings, this time directed by Gavin Hood of Ender's Game and Tsotsi. This was a loose adaptation of the Weapon X storyline from the 1988 ongoing Wolverine comic series which explored how Logan got the unbreakable adamantium bonded to his skeleton. It also has a fleeting reference to Paul Jenkins' Majestic Origin miniseries from 2001, notably now available as a motion comic that I'm willing to bet decent money is superior to this. Three years after X-Men 3 The Last Stand artificially closed off the ongoing mutant struggle for acceptance, creating a mock trilogy in doing so, Fox pushed forwards with two spin-off projects. One of them was a story about Magneto, which got adapted into a reboot to create a roughly in-continuity prequel, X-Men First Class. The other was this Wolverine picture, featuring what was perceived as the most bankable character in the series, someone who, since the 90s, had become nearly as synonymous with Marvel as Spider-Man and the Hulk, and more recently, Iron Man. This was written by Skip Woods, the man responsible for the most recent and by far the worst die-hard movie script. That would be A Good Day to Die Hard, the fifth one. Is it? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it is. No, the other one's called um, Live Long or Die Hard. Live no. Long or Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, that's, uh, the, that's the Star Trek. They can have that one for Die Hard 6. <laughs> no, it was um, Live Free or Die Hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, he wrote the fifth one, the shit one, the really shit one in Russia. He also wrote Hitman. I say wrote. Uh, he also wrote Swordfish and his best work, The A-Team. Also, David Benioff, writer of tedious, forgotten sandal botherer Troy, heavily involved with adapting Game of Thrones. The film was mostly shot in Australia and New Zealand, with Canada also serving as a location. Production and post-production were troubled. 
with delays due to the weather and Jackman's other commitments, an incomplete screenplay that was still being written in Los Angeles while principal photography rolled in Australia, conflicts arising between director Hood and Fox's executives, and an unfinished work print being leaked on the internet one month before the film's debut. So if you can imagine this one, Sharon, green screens and wire work everywhere. And like Wolverine slashing about with pretend claws that weren't there. I was going to say, that would have looked awful. (laughs) Gavin Hood and Fox were in dispute on the film's direction. One of the disputes involved the depiction of Wolverine as an army veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder, with the executives arguing that audiences would not be interested in such heavy themes. (sighs) What's wrong with this Wolverine? These cans are defective. He's exploding and I don't understand why. Hugh Jackman later confessed being unhappy with the final result of X-Men Origins Wolverine. The actor wanted primarily a film that would deepen the Wolverine character, but somehow, somehow, read, due to Fox executives fucking meddling, same as they did with X-Men 3, the first Wolverine movie ended up looking like the fourth X-Men, just with different characters. He tried to avert the same results while doing the next solo film for the character's 2013 The Wolverine. And you'll find out very soon whether that was any good. Okay, so we've got a ton of bullet points to get through. There was a surprising amount to talk about in this one, actually. I expected just to sort of watch it with my head slumped in my hands and go, that was shit. But again, like all the other ones, it's not... A, a case of just across the board missed opportunities. There are some good bits in it. I'll say straight off, it's not the worst X-Men film. I think X-Men 3 still holds that brown shit-coloured crown. I was also quite surprised. Um, I wasn't expecting... I think I was expecting this to be not as bad as The Last Stand, but almost as bad as The Last Stand. And I think I, my conclusion was that it was actually superior in several ways. Okay, uh, the first thing that I knew about this film uh, was that they were going to be involving elements of Origin, which is Paul Jenkins' uh, six-issue miniseries, as I mentioned before. Um, I can say straight off, buy this book. Buy it on Comixology if you're buying digital books. Uh, buy it in paper form if you care about X-Men and Wolverine in general, uh, but haven't read this yet. This is the one to read. Uh, it's actually one of the things that kind of inspired the t- cartographer's handbook and for me to actually visit uh, this era of storytelling. It presented a science fiction style superhero story in a Tom Sawyer secret garden context and it's a wonderful emotionally charged kind of delicate story it, it doesn't just play out as you'd expect X-Men Origins Wolverine very much plays out as you'd expect uh, Origin not so much uh, they take they cherry pick what they consider to be the most important bits of Origin or elements of Origin in four minutes for the beginning of this film and that's it the character of Victor Creed in this film is analogous with the character of Dog Logan in Origin who is uh, James Howlett which is Logan's real name uh, his half brother 
It was never made explicitly clear that Dog Logan is Sabretooth. In fact, I think Paul Jenkins has gone on record as saying Dog Logan is most definitely not Sabretooth. So this led to you saying, well, why is he called Victor Creed if his name wasn't actually Logan? Yeah, I, I could, I just, I couldn't quite put them together, like where they decided to, to change the names in that, yet keep the names as they were in the origin book if they'd actively changed the characters and if Victor was going to go on to be Victor Creed at what point did he decide to be Creed instead of Logan and then you pointed out that I was probably thinking about it much harder than they had Yeah, and it was probably a waste of time they simply pointed at Dog Logan when he'd grown up and gone well he's Sabretooth isn't he and uh, in, even if he's not, we need him to be Sabretooth for this one. So uh, it, they condense it and they, they um, make it very simple for the audiences. There is so much that was in Origins not in this. There's a huge amount of, like, James Howlett being the young Wolverine is a very sickly, very shy, uh, kind of spoiled, quiet little boy. He spends most... He's Colin in The Secret Garden. He spends most of his time on his own. And um, his father retains a young girl named Rose to, uh, I suppose, tutor him and to draw him out of his shell. And uh, he gets very attached to her. And the whole time you're thinking this boy Dog, who's treated very badly by his father, the gardener and groundskeeper, whose name is Logan and looks exactly like Wolverine, and he's a horrible little shit. You're thinking, Christ, this Logan kid was horrible. Wolverine was a little fucker. But as it turns out, it's the sickly boy. James that turned out to be the Wolverine we know. And Dog Logan grows up to be somebody with a genuine vendetta against James. And after the scenario at the beginning of this film, Rose, who is entirely absent from this story, and James run off together to British Columbia where they work in a a timber camp. And there's a whole second half of the story there where where they're young teenagers and uh, James kind of finds out who he is there. And there's a really heart-wrenching tragic ending which explains why Wolverine cares so much about a certain other redhead as she symbolizes this girl that he let down but there's none of that <laughs> when you know I was, this film was going to come out I was like maybe they'll do a lot more origin you know I was thinking this is going to be like the Batman begins of Wolverine is it going to be because I, I I had no faith in the X-Men franchise at this point. It had gone from, oh, it's all right, to, that was pretty good, to, that was terrible. So I didn't really expect too much, but there was potential with this one. I was thinking, you know, they, they, they use this as a, like, the, you know, with all the flashback scenes in um, Batman Begins where it goes to uh, Tibet. I was thinking, well, that's how you characterize Wolverine. You show the making of him. But they went, ah. No one cares about this. And from the sounds of what the uh, execs were saying about, we don't want post-traumatic stress disorder in this character. No one cares. They would never have signed off on a a Wolverine story that's not an action film. The thing is, though, they say that. They don't want any post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that. It's still the fucking there. sequences was. What do they think it, that is going to do to somebody? It's still fucking there. It's just not explored. Just don't talk so about it. So what they mean is keep it light. Keep it light. 
We don't want to talk about it. One thing actually that really frustrates Complicated me. things make people feel confused and scared. Yeah, that's, that's of course why Inception did so very badly at the box office. Of course. Um, I think what, what frustrated me most about the, the, is botching too strong a word to use? Um, the, uh, the ditching of so much of the origin storyline, mm-hmm. uh, was actually not to do with what they cut because they, they did sort of, they obviously looked at it and went, right, what do we think are the key elements of this? And that's fair enough. But by making, um, James and Victor run off hand in hand, you never have that period of him being completely alone. You never have that well, sense. Well, you do at the end. Well, no, but I mean in, in his, in his youth and in the, in the escape from the house and the aftermath of that tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, although, yes, in the book he has Rose, he doesn't have anybody who has that, look, you and me are the same and we, we can uh, deal with this together. Yeah, because um, in that, the comics he did not grow up hanging out with Victor Creed all the absolutely time. Absolutely not. No, they, I, they definitely crossed paths many times, but he was not. That this bond of them being brothers side by side all the time throughout the ages they invented that for the film, and I actually don't dislike it. I lo- that's one of the things I do like about X Men Origins Wolverine. They've uh, capitalized on this bond. Agreed, but I just in that instance, in that first sort of immediate situation i just think it's it's kind of dispensed with one of the the elements of origin that i like the most which is that he does this terrible thing and then he has to reconcile that all by himself yeah but you know looking at the 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 way this film developed it, it was wishful thinking on our parts for it to be anything like origin true Anyway, so let's let's not bitch about how it's not like something good. Let's bitch about why it is something why bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, next up you've got the uh, the montage of various different uh, war sequences. Again, they they uh, shifted time a bit um, and put it back a little bit further. It was actually the tail end of the 19th century in uh, origin, but they put it before then, say the beginning of the 19th century, to allow Logan to be old enough to fight in the Civil War, on the Union side, of course, which is nice. I suppose it puts him very much in the... Nice. I suppose it puts him very much in the foreground of American wars, and, and it's sort of, you know, he's a patriot uh, at the same time. You could also say that he has this rather unsavory ability to be drawn into any particularly savage conflict. True. There's also a slight problem with that patriot thing. He's Canadian. <laughs> Well, the, there were many Canadian troops in the Union Army, and indeed, at least they said that he was born in Alberta. If I, I seem to remember, uh, Hugh Jackman was uh, at a, uh, had only just been announced as Wolverine and, and, and had visited Canada for like a, you know, to, to check it out. And uh, somebody stopped him in a gas station and said, uh, "You're going to make him Canadian, right?" And he was like, "Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, that's not going to be uh, omitted." And, um, in fact, if you've ever seen Pride of the X-Men, the pilot for the X-Men show that eventually became the 1992 ongoing series, you'll see an Australian Wolverine. <laughs> Oi! Kitty Pride! This one-off, unsuccessful X-Men pilot from the late 80s would appear to be where the makers of X-Men 2 got the ethical and emotional qualities of Magneto nailed down. I've done it! I've captured the Scorpio Comet! In less than a day, most of the human race will be wiped out. The mutants will rule the Earth! 
said true believers, unless the X-Men can stop Magneto, mankind is doomed. What happened? Are you all right? What is it? Magneto, he's changed the course of the comet Scorpio directly towards Earth. The power, it hit me like a fist. If Scorpio strikes Earth, it'll send up a cloud of dust and debris, which will block out the sun for years. And our planet will be plunged into the Ice Age. And we've got to stop it. Hold it. The kid stays here. She'll just get in the way. I will not. And stop calling me a kid. I am 14 years old. I'm sorry, Kitty. But Wolverine's right. You haven't been trained. It's much too dangerous. You'll stay here. Until later, my child. Oh, yeah? I'll show you... I'll show you all. So yeah, the Logan brothers fight in many wars together. And uh, you get Harry Gregson Williams' score. But this one actually has... It's got overtones of Metal Gear Solid, of, of which um, there, there's odd similarities between Solid Snake and Wolverine. And it, it that actually fits very well with this particular aesthetic they're going for. as this eternal warrior. We're going to call him Logan rather than James the whole way through, even though his real name is James. He starts using Logan very early on. I think um, once they actually cut to um, scenes where dialogue is happening rather than it all being visual, um, although Victor calls him James a couple of times, once they meet Stryker, he's calling him Logan pretty much off the bat, so I'm guessing he changed his name fairly early in this Stryker only ever calls him Logan as well. Yeah. In fact, that's the only name that gets put on his um, dog tags. Yes. Wolf tags. Wolverine tags. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, just to reiterate, his name was James Howlett, and his brother was Victor Logan, and they changed their names to James Logan and Victor Creed. For no apparent reason. Other than don't ask questions. Yeah. Um, you see why I would be confused? I are confused. So Danny Houston comes in as William Stryker, and I, I remember when I uh, first saw 30 Days of Night, in fact, I think I even mentioned it on the Digital Cowboys podcast about it. My God, this guy's like a young Brian Cox. So uh, that's as, as perfect a casting <laughs> as I could uh, imagine. He is very good, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say very good. He doesn't have much to work with. He isn't as impactful as Cox's striker. Considering how little he has to work with, I think he's very good. He gets the, um, the threat of striker across. He gets the, uh, the pure viciousness of, of what this man will do for. It's never quite clear whether it's an ideology or whether it's, um, uh, something that he feels is his duty because he's, I think he says at one point that even though he's, he's realized that his son is now a mutant, he took an oath, but there's never any indication that he gets anything other than, um, pleasure out of doing what he does. True. 
I think the thing he uh, captured that Cox manages in X-Men 2 is that all of that fear he has boiling beneath the surface, he keeps it in check all the time. And he's always just ever so slightly smirking and uh, uh, speaking in a, in a, a sort of quiet, uh, assertive manner to get what he needs to get done so that the thing that is causing him the fear can be dealt with. Hmm... hmm. He's a he's a very very angry man that hides that. Yes. So then we get to Team X. Uh, one of the weakest parts of the film. This is when the, the the guys who are just total badasses talk to each other in a totally badass way. We do get to see uh, th- there are two Deadpool's in this film. One of them is played by uh, Ryan Reynolds. The other guy at the end, there's a guy who's uncredited as playing Weapon. XI or 11 or whatever the fuck he's called. He sure as shit isn't Deadpool. And I don't, I don't actually believe that that was Ryan Reynolds. Played by a man named Scott Adkins. Basically seasoned as playing a henchman, a stuntman and a fighter. They may have CG'd his eyes in because he's got those puppy dog eyes. Even as Deadpool. Even as this terrifying creature. But um, it may just be that they got a guy who had similar eyes to uh, Ryan Reynolds. In fact, it may simply be that the, the Deadpool that we see is because Ryan Reynolds was also doing Green Lantern. And, and, and so playing wasn't... him very similarly to how he plays Wade. But that's the thing. Fair. The idea being that, well, we wanted to have Deadpool, but we can't because he's not here. So let's sort of do a lumbering nobody. But, I, okay, so as Wade Wilson... They, I get that he's twisted and fucked up and he says things to get a rise out of people and he's fearless and um, he's... I mean, you know, Deadpool is, is pretty good with... Uh, okay, right, well, I actually went through a list of Deadpool's powers. Let's reel them off, shall we? Because he has a lot. Yeah, uh, it wasn't really made clear what his powers were in this. I think being fast enough to block bullets with his samurai swords and, and redirect them is, is one of them. Uh, he has a regenerative healing factor, which every one of Wolverine's enemies has to have, otherwise they automatically are going to die. There's yes. no way you can take on Wolverine without a healing factor. He has superhuman stamina, agility, flexibility and reflexes. He has devices that allow for teleportation and holographic disguise. He carries a magical satchel. He has extended longevity. He has immunity to telepathy. He's a master martial artist, swordsman and marksman, and he's also immortal. So basically, ah. under his entry in the mutant book, it just says, fantastically awesome. I'm Deadpool, and I have many powers. Absolutely. <laughs> and he's better than Logan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's basically Bullrog from uh, that episode of South Park. Indeed. And, and the Emperor so from... The magical satchel, he has Hermione's um, undetectable extension charm bag. He has Mary Poppins' bag. <laughs> I don't know what's in it. But either way, if everyone who knows Deadpool knows that this was sort of a little bit of a tissue-thin glimpse of Deadpool here. But also that he's not really that bankable of a star. They were thinking about doing a Deadpool spin-off, but they'd fucked this so badly that they decided against it. Um, so, yeah, he turns up, he cracks wires, he jumps out of the lift, he's flashing off his swords, and and, and that's it. That's pretty much all we get. Every, yeah, one of the best things about Deadpool in every other medium uh, which requires acting is that Nolan North plays him pretty much all the time and has really got a bead on the character. So he's got this great patter 
as playing Deadpool. So the animated version, the video game version, that's your real Deadpool. This guy, not so much. But I'm not going to complain that much because it wasn't like a oh they, they could have that, that character had limitless potential. He's not that good of a character. I was he, he's great in small doses, but I'm actually really not sure I'd like a a, a full Deadpool movie. I don't. I think it would it would be it would really break the fourth wall, and it would require a, a director with I suppose Edgar Wright could do it. Well, it would have to be done with a comedy slant because, I mean, somebody who's got that many powers, what's left that you could do to them? Indeed. So, oh, uh, there was a small storm averted here uh, in terms of the fact that um, <laughs> a young storm was supposed to turn up in this. Remember when they almost showed Storm's origin in uh, the original X-Men? Well, they've avoided it again. So, well done them. Let's Let's not add any extra depth or scope to these characters. Good idea. Although she does turn up or at least it looks like her uh, in uh, X-Men First Class. There's a, there's a white-haired black girl uh, in Cerebro when, it's, he's, uh, when Chance puts it on for the first time. Although 60 for the age isn't right. Here's the great Nolan North showing us all how you really do Deadpool. Logan, we missed you. That web and act just hasn't been the same without you. Nobody calls me Bob anymore. And Omega Red's a bedwetter. One day. Despite Deadpool's idiocy, Weapon X is indeed pleased to have you back, Logan. We put considerable time and money into you. And pointy things. Jackman playing it serious. And this is a big deal, because if Jackman had just taken the paycheck and Sean Connery'd his way through this, and just gone, fuck it, I'm getting paid for this, ah, I don't care, and just done it like diamonds are forever, that might have sunk the fucking series. Or at least it might have sunk the Wolverine character because people would have been like, we don't really want to see Wolverine again. But he really, as always, throws himself into it. He even did this in X-Men 3. So I do have a lot of respect for uh, for Jackman actually committing to the character and he knows it better than anyone else with the possible exception of Steve Blum, but even then. He certainly knows this version in and out. Oh, yeah. He's he's played him so many times now. And, and he obviously... This is obviously a character who means a great deal to him. And you're right. He he throws himself into these films so completely. He was one of the few barely acceptable things about X-Men 3. <laughs> so the fact that this is all focused on him. And the Oscar for barely acceptable goes to... <laughs> and the Oscar for unacceptable goes to everyone else at X-Men 3. Yeah, whatever fucker watched it before it went in the tin and went, yeah, that'll do. So yeah, he 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 puts a lot of heart into the uh, character and, and does his uh, his I would say his usual performance, but he remains consistent throughout the series. Is is probably the best way of putting it. So anyway, he's heavily involved in a uh, a loving relationship with someone named Kayla Silver Fox, who from her name it would and uh, what she talks about would appear to have Native American heritage or possibly First Nation since she comes from Canada. And uh, she goes through her shtick about the legend of the Wolverine, which I actually couldn't help but get caught up in, because I love uh, fables like that. Did you feel this was too much, or too little? No, I thought it was it was really sweetly told, actually. And I think there's... Because she's a teacher, isn't she? Mm-hmm. So I, I really got the idea that sort of, you know, this was a little story that she tells to her students and is something that she thought was 
sweet and funny and um, oddly appropriate. She's very convincing, even when there's a sharp right turn in the character later on. And I think it would be reasonable to say that the Rose element of origin has kind of been pushed forward. Yeah. To wit, I kind of wish she'd been in it more. Mm. Yeah, although I think there is a, a character called Silver Fox who's incorporated into Wolverine's history in the comics anyway, isn't there? Yeah, I think she was a member of Alpha Flight. I could be wrong on that. Hang on. Uh, no, that was um, uh, that was Heather that he was involved with. Who's oh, in Alpha Heather's Flight. in this as well. Is she? Yep. I missed that one. No, you didn't. Heather and Travis Hudson are the old couple. Oh, Rimini. Oh, my God. Their only function is to basically take in Logan and uh, give him shelter and and, uh, the milk of human kindness. So they turned them into Ma and Pa fucking Kent. They didn't want there to be a a weird sexual frisson with the, uh, the, the woman of the house. Reasonable, I suppose. And also having Wolverine interact with a female character who isn't young, nubile and available. And he can't just win over by taking off his shirt. Yeah, which he does frequently. I think, how many minutes did we count before he took his shirt off? It wasn't long. Firing squad first, shirt off next. Yes. Followed immediately by his firing squad buddy, Leave Schreiber as Victor Creed. Leave Schreiber needs to be in more stuff. One of the things I was most pissed off about uh, regarding the original X-Men uh, back in the day, it doesn't burn anywhere near as much now because I've had this, is how much of a lumbering, lunk-headed nobody the depiction of Sabretooth was. He was a lackey. He was a nothing character. Uh, Leif Schreiber makes him as threatening, as psychologically brutal, uh, and as much of a stalking presence as Victor Creed in the comics. He's always scared the living shit out of me. And there's a scene with uh, uh, where Creed and uh, Dominic Monaghan, Bolt, uh, are in the caravan together. It doesn't it doesn't take on Anton Chigurh levels or um, Inglorious Bastards levels of tension, but it could have done with a better director, more time, and uh, a steadier hand. He has that. There's that same level of unspoken absolute terror. Part of that, uh, how that scene works, though, is uh, Dominic Monaghan. I have to say, he's really sold that. Mm, with a tiny role mm, of yeah. an unnamed character no one will remember from the comics. With a shitty mutant power as well. Although I, I thought one of the things that um, that really impressed me about the framing of that was how uh, they pull back so that you can see the whole fair. And then after the scream, all the lights go out. Mm-hmm. And the suggestion is that basically he was responsible for powering the whole camp. Nice. Um, And it's it's that idea of um, you can tell yourself if you know if you're involved in um, going around and winking certain people out of existence, it's very easy to tell yourself that um, you're doing the right thing. As they uh, talk about later on, um, that they're protecting people by taking out these mutants that are incredibly dangerous and yada 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 um, but ultimately that all of these people were dependent on him and there are, there's all these lives that are touched by this one death yeah or that wasn't the intention at all and it was just that in the stress of his uh, final seconds he put out all the lights also a possibility 
Yeah. Not how I'm choosing to interpret it. <laughs> cool. Let's overinterpret here because, frankly, if we underinterpret, then this film, this podcast will be half a second long. If it, if something has the capacity for overinterpretation, that's a good thing. It's when they cut off the possibility for interpretation <laughs> at every available turn that that's bad. I said, show's over. Show's never over for us, Bradley. Victor. Aren't you going to invite me in? Yeah. Come on in. You know, I've never said anything to anyone about what happened. I'm living a totally different life now, Victor. scene where Silver Fox pitches up dead. I don't know if uh, I actually would have emotionally engaged with it more if they hadn't pulled to the crane shot of him going, no, and shaking his fist at the sky. Damn you, Salazar! In the same way as he did with Gene in the uh, in X-Men 3. Uh, a moment still incredibly raw with me and made me sad and angry. Not the actual death, the death of the franchise. I don't think I took against that scene particularly possibly because the Wolverine legend was still very fresh in my head, and so I, I saw that as him howling at the moon, basically. The crane shot is, is done deliberately in as many shitty TV thrillers as possible. So, you know, uh, someone is dead and, and they were a fragile person that you were trying to look after, and then the crane shot goes up and you go, ah! It's been done a billion times to the point where our mind pretty much just sort of settles into the camera movements because we've mm. seen it so many times. Yeah. Um, which is why things like, say, the death at the end of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix are so impactful because it doesn't do exactly that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's... it. When you're familiar with filmic language the way you are, it, it becomes something that you, you just expect to see. You know that shot means someone's dead. Yeah. And not just that the shot, but the music swells up... For the emotion. Yeah. Again, that's why I love it when they pull out the sound and they leave you alone with this horrible situation instead. Uh, the Creed fight, uh, we'll, we'll rush through this one. You get to see the bone claws, which uh, back in Fatal Attractions that I mentioned uh, in the last episode where we talked about X-Men 3, um, Magneto pulls all of the uh, adamantium out of Wolverine's body. Then everyone's thinking, oh my God, Wolverine now sucks. He's got no claws left. This guy's not going to be interesting at all. And then in that issue, I think it's Wolverine 75, he's barely holding his body together and Gene's having to hold the spaceship they're escaping from Avalon uh, in um, together whilst trying to keep him alive. And his bone claws pop out. You're like, oh my God, they were there all along. And that was the first time you find out that they were there. And of course, that comes back in uh, Origin, where when he first pops his claws, that's an incredibly traumatic event. But here we get to see them, and they look more realistic and more um, solid than his adamantium claws later in the film. 
They do. And also, the way they've done the bone claws is much more similar to the way the adamantium claws uh, the way that I am used to the adamantium claws being presented in comic form and cartoon form, which is in the form of, of almost circular claws that yeah. come out of the back of his hand. The, the flat blades coming out from <clears throat> in between his fingers <clears throat> is, is just in the films, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And that actually doesn't fit with the bone claws because where are they? Where are the bone claws in that? They'd be sticking out of the sides of the adamantium. Well, yeah, the actual shape of the adamantium claws doesn't quite match the uh, the bone claws. I actually like the, them coming out of the inside of his uh, uh, knuckles rather than out of the top of his hand. Mm. Uh, it's always bothered me that if you if you hold your arm up in front of you, everyone do this right now, and just sort of tilt your wrist and try to imagine the actual physics of this thing and like where you'd conceal these claws and wouldn't they create these enormous great horrible ridges on your arms and how fucking painful they'd be all the time and and just the incorporation of them into the human body just doesn't feel natural at all for some reason out of the inside of the knuckles they can be secreted within the arm which actually makes more sense it still doesn't really work with the whole bending of the wrist maybe they're in the arm and nowhere near the actual hand at all unless you... All I know is it's hard to make the action figures with bendable arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the claws are incredibly bendable and yeah. don't look solid whatsoever. Because you can't send out Wolverine action figures with very, very solid claws because kids will poke each other's eyes out. Yes, they will. Either way, uh, that was something I really didn't object to. And in the original uh, X-Men uh, 1, 2, and 3, Hugh Jackman was using these sort of like... They were like three long blades joined uh, with a sort of a crossbar in the middle. And he would hold the crossbar in his hands and the blades would protrude through his fingers and they would feel very, very solid and very much linked to him. And obviously during the fight scenes when it was dangerous, they would he would have rubber claws or he would have... They would occasionally CG them when it was very dangerous and he was poking them in people's faces. In this... They're always CG, and it fucking shows. There is something really off about these. I've heard them referred to as placeholder CG, and they just never went over it again and made them best. Oh, my God. Lazy. Oh, no, that's what they look like. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were placeholder. Ah, right. They just feel like they're placeholder. I mean, they feel like they were made on Microsoft Paint. (laughs) They're not, um, they don't reflect, they're not shiny, they're quite matte, aren't they? Or, or they're shiny but there's no reflections in them, or what, mm. what it is there is very artificial, they're just, they're, they're, they don't catch the light right. There's something that doesn't look quite real they're, about they're, them. They're too bright, or, mm. or too matte, or they, 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 they don't seem like they're there. Incidentally, the um, uh, having the, the hand piece that um, Jackman actually held for the, the other films, um, if you look closely at the Marvel Lego Wolverine, <clears throat> he's holding little claw <laughs> uh, frames in his hands. Yeah, which kind of makes perfect sense for a little Lego guy if you still want him to be able to hold onto the, say, the handles of a motorbike. Okay, so yeah, the, you get the Creed fight, but the, the best thing about this is the, the Wild West kind of, you know, squaring off against each other in this knackered, uh, old, sort of thrown together bar 
saloon type thing and, and uh, that's that's where all of the um the best aspects of this film come through the tension between these two guys it's not really about the actual fighting which was well, once it starts you just sort of start to snooze because you've seen wolverine fight a bunch of people all over the place and that's the thing that people don't seem to get when they're making wolverine movies we've seen wolverine fight it's been done so it really comes down to what you can conjure up for something to really emotionally affect Logan. I think what carried it for me was that um, because of the early setup, because you've got the whole seeing them in these, all of these um, conflicts together, um, and particularly when it gets to Vietnam and things start to get really, really nasty, although I think the point at which it appears that Logan starts to, work out that Victor's enjoying this whole thing a little bit too much during World War II. Um, Although I think you said there was probably a little hint of it beforehand. Um, But yeah. Uh, um, Although they've got all this history together and although there is obviously a lot of um, uh, Logan being unhappy with the way things are being handled and what they're being asked to do and, and that all that history and past is there, he'd walked away. He, he had this new life and he had this, um, you know, this partner who was, who had become everything for him. And you, you really get a sense that when they square off there, it's entirely about her. There's something very frightening about, uh, Schreiber's performance as Creed. He's mostly pretty understated. He doesn't gloat. He, he says a lot of things with suggestive looks and, uh, you get the, the feeling that reasoning with him makes absolutely no difference when he's got his mind set on something but at the same time he's not played as an entirely black character there are times uh, specifically you know nearer to the end when he actually seems to care about logan which doesn't run perfectly parallel with a completely stone cold sociopath so that gives him a bit more dimension Mm. more dimension than most of the people that logan has a scrap with Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the things that, I mean, we, we said that there are things that this film actually does really impressively. And that's one of them. Uh, to, to have that relationship between Wolverine and Sabretooth be the center of it, it has to be strong. It, there has to be something to keep your interest in it beyond the first 45 minutes of the first big fight. Yeah. Um, and, and it has that in spades. The key conflict arises from the fact that, like most uh, comic book nemesises, nemesi, nemesis, nemesis, um, nematode, no, uh, uh, Wolverine's is a shadowy, hulking reflection of himself. In the same way that uh, Ironmonger in the original Iron Man is like Tony Stark without any morals or ethics, uh, Sabretooth is the wild unbridled side of Logan that he's terrified of, that he doesn't want to ever let off the chain. And uh, Creed revels in this. He loves the fact that uh, he he, ha- he answers to no one. He, he goes along with the people who uh, give him the chance to get into the best action. Uh, but uh, the, the, one, the key theme, which Fox allowed to be put in there at all, is, quote-unquote, civilised man, at least a noble warrior... Versus the wild animal. And both of them are at war within Logan all the time. Indeed. And the fact that um, that Victor is his half-brother brings that home even harder. Mm. <clears throat> so then there's the Weapon X experiment, which uh, felt kind of like deja vu, since we've already seen a lot of flashes of this in uh, X-Men 2. 
I suppose you could interpret the different approaches to Logan that outsiders take and the the folks running the Weapon X project, when he pulls himself out of the water and goes ballistic, all they had to do was say, stop, we're your friends, calm the fuck down, or, or just at least try to dissipate the tension of the situation rather than shooting him in the in the head. It reminds me of how Charles goes in to talk to Jean and agitates the hell out of her so that she kills him. They're basically just so ready to end his life and they don't care about him at all. And then you got the Kents, sorry, the Hudsons, uh, who are uh, nurturing to him and treat him like uh, the, you know a proxy version of their son who's wandered in off the street. They, they show compassion. And there's a, a Frankenstein parallel there as well. The rejected monster, uh, the creation, striking out against his creator and finding the milk of human kindness when he's wandering in the wild. Again, pretty clumsy and ham-fisted, but I'll take it over the completely not trying in X-Men 3 any day. Oh, one more thing about the Weapon X experiment. Someone says, Weapon X, and he says, Roman numeral 10. So that implies that there have been uh, nine weapons before that. Weapon I, Weapon II, Weapon III, Weapon IV, Weapon V, Weapon VI, Weapon VII, Weapon VIII, Weapon IX, Weapon X. That sounds pretty awesome, but then it goes shit again. Weapon XI, Weapon XII, Weapon XIII, Weapon XIV. Why not just call it Weapon 10? Yes. That if would you be really, if you are gonna, committed to this premise, cause he says, fire up Weapon 11 at the end, which is it, dude? And it's supposed to be a visual thing as well, that reference. If, if you saw it written down, or carved into the side of the cage, or something like that, mm-hmm. then that's, that's okay. That works. Because you get to put the Roman numeral and the number together in your head. But when somebody actually has to say it out loud. Mind you, I mean, this was, this was something that suddenly hit me about, um, half an hour into the film. Cause it's, it, they start off with this, uh, they've gone back to this visual storytelling thing, which when they've done it in the earlier films has worked so well. And then they seem to abandon that in favor of a series of, little trailer scripts nobody ever has a complete conversation it's all just Mm. trailer moments we lost contact with who everyone yeah this is uh, one of the weakest uh, sides of it and also and we've seen this before if you've seen the x-men cartoon it plays through roughly the same if you've read the uh, weapon x comic it plays through roughly the same that's not necessarily a bad thing but they didn't really add anything to this scenario also, the whole weapon XI, weapon XII, weapon XI against I. Um, <laughs> flesh of my flesh and mind of my mind. Uh, he's, that's all from Grant Morrison's X-Men. I think he introduced Phantom X, who was like weapon 13 or something. Mm. And so Wolverine finds out that X stood for 10, and that kind of busts the Wolverine uh, mythos open without Grant Morrison really thinking, oh, hang on a second, they'd have to call the eighth one a weapon VIII, which is inelegant. <laughs> After the Kents get mercilessly shot by um, Weapon Zero. Mm-hmm. Agent Zero. Agent Zero. Yeah, he mercilessly shoots them. And then there's this fucking motorbike sequence, which is ridiculous, with a helicopter sequence. And then Wolverine kills a helicopter with just his claws. Tony Jar could have done it with his knees. True. But... but um, 
And, and, then, and then Wolverine does that thing where he sort of sets a helicopter on fire and walks away from the explosion looking like it ain't no thing. And I've seen this awesome uh, YouTube video where it's just people walking away from explosions. Even Iron Man does it when he just fends up tank missile and then walks towards the camera like, ah, uh huh, uh huh, man yeah, but on fire. He's, he's wearing armor at least. Wolverine would suffer from singed hair yeah. if nothing else. But I mean, you, uh, the bit, uh, the Rock does it in. Um, uh, Welcome to the jungle slash the rundown, depending on which territory you're in. And like, like giant flaming tires are flying past his head. And it's like, no, 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 you should really look behind you. There's shit flying at you. And one of these, like, <laughs> you they might want to duck. They could have done it in hot fuzz, actually, where like they blow shit up and then they walk away from it. And then it's like, then Danny Button goes, Oh fuck, there's bitch flying at us. <laughs> immediately. They're like, oh, I thought you could just keep walking forwards, but there's, it's really dangerous. <laughs> They missed a trick there. But, um, yeah, again, that's just like the camera panning up and the music swelling out. We've seen it so many times that our brain just goes, oh, it's that bit. And we just sort of nod along with it. But, but, I mean, I'm waiting for films to stop doing stuff like this. That will never happen. There will always be films that do stuff like this. Where men blow things up and walk slowly away from them. Absolutely. Blame (laughs) Like it ain't no thing. Seems like these days the whole world's on fire. Things keep blowing the hell up. And while all those rubberneckers and looky-loos stand slack-jawed staring, the real men have the nuts to walk away. Yeah. Cool guys don't look at explosions. They blow things up and then walk away. Who's got time to watch an explosion? Cool guy Aryans that they have to walk to Keep walking, keep shining Don't look back, keep on walking Keep strutting, slow motion The more you ignore it, the cooler you look Anyway, they probably don't need to do any, any more Marvel films unless they're parodying Iron Man. I mean, Deadpool could do it. Yes. Anyway, then there's an awkward comedy boxing match with Fat Bastard from Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. This is because they've been trying to get the blob into previous X-Men films and they couldn't do it in any way where people wouldn't laugh at him. So they thought, let's just do it and have a full-throated belly laugh at the fatty. And it's okay to laugh at him because he was previously thin and this is his fault. Hang on a minute, though. It's not glandular. It's all right. No, no, no. They say he developed an eating disorder. So what you're basically doing is having a laugh at somebody with severe mental health issues. Yes. What's his mutant power as well? In, in, in the comics, Fred Dukes the Blob can, like, like his, his he flab... He absorbs kinetic energy. Yeah. His, the more his, he absorbs, the stronger he gets. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's part and parcel of who he is, and his power is actually used as a weapon. In this, it's just a fat bloke. Who seems to be a little bit resistant to getting punched with an adamantium fist. I think... The, un- the thing that really makes this a bit creepier and uncomfortable is the fact that Hugh Jackman can barely hold back the hilarity of the situation. He's like, dude, he's got an extra hiney poking out of his front. And it's like, yes, everyone in the audience who is overweight is now squirming in their seats. It's not very pleasant. Yeah. So, yeah, cheers for that one. 
And, and of course, we get the acting tornado that is rapper Will I Am. But Ms. Keys wasn't the only MOBO winner hawking technology. The ubiquitous Will I Am was at Macworld last week, where the Wall Street Journal asked him penetrating questions about technology. What's your What's your favorite gadget right now? Right now would be the iPad Mini. Really? What do you like about it? It's smaller than the iPad. He was promoting his own bespoke gizmo, showcased lovingly by CNN, a $400 accessory that turns the iPhone into a boxier, less ergonomic iPhone. So then you sit there and you lock it. Now it's locked. Presumably it's aimed at people who wished they'd bought a camera in 1978 instead of an iPhone in 2013. But wait, it also has an extra function. And if that's not enough, a keypad for folks who want to text. Yeah, for folks who want to text on something other than, but attached to, the iPhone they already own. Still on the plus side, it lights up. Will I am is proud of his invention, as he explained during the launch a few months ago. This was in my head in February, and now it's in my hand in November. About to be in stores in December. And in landfill sites by March. We also get to see a young Scott Summers, uh, Cyclops, with who appears to have very fortunately stumbled upon some ruby quartz sunglasses. Yeah. Where did he get them from? Xavier I mean, gave them to him. As I recall in the comics, the point is that his his power develops, tears apart his school, and then Scott is left this weeping kid in the corner um, who afraid to open his eyes, and everyone's terrified of him. Charles turns up to rescue him from that situation, and they talk it through together, and Charles figures out through his incredible brain power that some sort of inhibitor might actually allow Scott to see. In this, he's just got them already. That, that basically is just an astonishing narrative contrivance. And he spends the rest of the film with like a blindfold on uh, so that he can't see that Wolverine saved everyone and so he doesn't remember him later. Except, of course, that everybody who he's hanging out with when they go to, to meet horrible, weird, creepy CG Botox Xavier at the end. So glad he turned up. I'm not even sure Patrick Stewart did anything other than turn up and do some recording booth work because I don't think that was even him. <laughs> Hey, Patrick, we can put your face on anybody now. Yeah, well, I'm assuming they still had it in their computers. Oh, my God. We've got your face in a box. Look, we put it on the baby from Twilight. (laughs) That's good. Oh, dear. Can you make all the ladies' clothes fall off? Instantly. Instantly. Their clothes fall off? Instantly, sure. So, yeah, I'm I'm assuming uh, when um, all of these young mutants met him, nobody said, well, thank God for that guy with the big long claws. Because he saved us all. I'm assuming everyone just conveniently forgot that and no one ever mentioned it to Scott. Because if they had, he'd sure as shit be on the lookout for a six-clawed mutant that he could say thank you to. You would think. And that if he ever met him, he wouldn't be a prick to him. But anyway, don't think too much. Don't think too much. Action sequence. (sighs) And, um, yeah, we get to see... uh, uh, Taylor Kitsch as Shambit. <laughs> they waited all this time to bring Gambit into the X-Men movies and then they fucked it up. It's like, he's going to be good, it's going to be good, you know it's going to be good because we're holding it back, we're holding it back, we don't want to mess it up, we don't want to shoot our load before we they have the totally perfect shot Gambit. their load. I mean, I, right, Just okay. in their pants they did. On this occasion, I have to admit, I was not as appalled 
by Taylor Kitsch, as I have been in the past. Let's he's face not it, Gambit an is unattractive not, guy. Gambit is not the deepest of characters either. No, he's not. But the problem is that what Gambit does have, what Gambit has in spades, if you'll pardon the pun, is charisma. He Natural has it coming out of the wazoo. Powers. Absolutely. And yet, there's Taylor Kitsch, who's not bad looking, but that's about the best you can say about him. Josh Holloway must have been available for the three afternoons that it required Taylor Kitsch to show up. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and th- that bit, that bit where he's climbing the ladder and, and like super fast oh and Wolverine's chopping God. down the ladder like jack, jack, jack. It's like oh. a fucking cartoon. It's like a Warner Brothers cartoon. The bit where he takes, uh, Wolverine smashes his staff in half and he uses the sharp ends to climb up the, the brick wall. And then he like does this cartwheel over the street because of his natural agility. It's like, it's like a parody of the Matrix. That, that is like the movie movies doing the Matrix. Right. Here's the thing though, there will be people out there, possibly not listening to this, but there will be people out there who will be saying, so what you're saying is you'll accept a guy who has metal claws coming out of his hands. Climbing up a a power station, which he does later. Indeed. But not a guy using the ends of a broken walking stick to do the same thing. Well, no, because when they started making these films, they made it clear that they were intending them to seem realistic. You, once yeah. you set up the physics of your world, it's good manners, if nothing else, to stay within those parameters. I mean, if nothing else, if you want to really split hairs about it, and I do... Uh... <laughs> Wolverine has a super strong adamantium unbreakable skeleton, so when he jams those claws into brickwork and pulls himself up, he has the ruggedness to be able to, like, be shoving unbreakable spikes into, climbing spikes into things. Gambit has two broken sticks and human's ability to jam them into brickwork. He's not blowing them up. There's no basketballs here. (laughs) What's wrong with these balls? So yeah, I, I will at least say that when he charges up the cards, it's like an oh yeah moment. It was like <laughs> a half an oh yeah moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a second and a half. Yeah. <laughs> but that's about it. And uh, Creed also does a lot of... This is where Creed does some fighting in the alley. I, I'm not sure whether he's bounding along like a, a wild animal, almost like a... Um, Cat. Uh, well, no, I was going to say Wendigo. Oh, okay. No, not the Hulk villain, the Wendigo. No. The Cat Talk of a Zambuk Wendigo. Your Wendigos, yeah. They're not my... Yeah, there they are. They are your Wendigos. I'm having them. You I'm having them. They're mine. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to work out whether that bounding is really cool or really shit. Right. It's here's, one or the other, depending the on how much you accept of it. When he does one and a half bounds and then pounces on Wolverine in, in the bar slow fight, motion. It looks awesome. Yeah, that's true. When he does two and a half, <laughs> looking like a dickhead. And when he tur- when he's in the school and he bounces up and turns into a rubber man. And oh my god! Bounces so off the walls, bounces off the ceiling, runs along upside down. You're like, yes. Ooh, yeah. Then it's shit. Okay, well there you go. Then it's really cool for a bit, and then it's really shit when they maintain it. Yeah. There you go. Then overdid it. Leap. Otherwise, he just morphs into a CG cat. Good. FYI, Beast does this in X-Men 3 and in Days of Future Past. 
also, so Creed kills Will I Am and then sucks out his juice with a <laughs> with a, a, a syringe. What is that? He, 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 he like he jabs him and then sucks out a bit of his fluids, and then he goes and squirts that into the dead pool, and then he takes on all of those. I'm not sure they really thought this through. This is this is like 1979 technology. Well, this is from. Bear in mind, this is probably from a very similar brain that brought you Magneto's mutantifying machine. How does that work then? Oy. Oh, you just hold these handles and then it does whatever you want it to do. Yeah. So he he sucks out a bit of this juice, and he also sucked out some blob juice, and he sucked out some <laughs> Scott sucked out some of Scott juice, and. Uh, <laughs> And, and someone had swords in their arms and they sucked out his juice too. <laughs> and someone disgusting. teleported. Yeah, that was Wraith. He teleported and uh, someone couldn't speak and he sucked out his juice and then they squirted all of it. It's like he's a giant cocktail. It's like he's a, a three mile island iced tea. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. <laughs> Honestly, top of my head. They also sucked it out of the top of his head. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, the, the basic my eye juices. again, just like all the X Men films, it's like okay, right, realistic, serious, like character interplay back and forth, and then it collapses like a flan in a cupboard at the end, where they go, finally, our horrible creation is complete. Never tested it before, but it should work really, really well. Off you go, get some pajama bottoms on him though, at least protect his dignity. And it's this sort of. Not a tall Deadpool. One thing Deadpool doesn't have. Swords in his arms. He talks. I mean, it's not Deadpool. And I don't, I don't think I'm really going to argue that much about it or, 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 or make that much of a big deal. A lot of people have already made a big deal out of it. It's, it, he is every shambling, pointless henchman ever that Wolverine's ever fought. And just like Sabretooth in the first X-Men film, and just like Deathstroke in the second X-Men film, and just like everybody that Logan fought in the third X-Men film, he doesn't talk. Well, he's Darth Maul. You pointed that out. Yeah, he even down to the slow motion Darth bisecting yeah. as he fought top And the two, the two swords, uh, he totally is Darth Maul. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, they've already had Darth Maul. They had Toad. How much more Darth Maul do you want? <laughs> Lots. But yeah, I think... They do know Star Wars isn't cool anymore, right? I think what happened is that they looked at a picture of Deadpool and said, That guy looks really cool. He's mute, right? No. <laughs> oh, he's the Merc with the mouth. That's his name. He's he's really mouthy. Well, let's just say he's mute. We'll sew his mouth shut. Why? Because he, well, he's got to fight someone. Could he not fight Creed? No. Surely fighting Creed... <laughs> should happen at the end of the film and should be the one that's really emotionally charged, not fighting that thing. So you've got Deadpool with no witty quips and one-liners, mm-hmm. Gambit with no charisma. Mm-hmm. And Wraith with no juice, because <laughs> they sucked it out of him. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. Oh, Blob with no powers as well. Just a fat guy. It's like Jenga. How much could they take out before it fell over? Well, that much. And then around about the time they get to Three Mile Island, it falls it over. It falls over. And it really can't sustain itself beyond that alley fight, which it was already very shaky at that point. So, yeah, uh, and Kayla shows up and uh, we find out that uh, she wasn't dead and it was the old, um, I, you know, won't be dead trick. 
So as I understand it, she was kind of like Sharon Stone in Total Recall. She was set up to be in a relationship with Logan so that Stryker could lure him back by instigating and orchestrating a fake death. But it turns out she fell in love with him for real. Initially, she was supposed to be keeping an eye on him, basically. Like, just monitoring him. So, yeah, exactly like Sharon Stone in Total Recall. Um, but then they presumably initiated this project, decided that they wanted him back. Um, there was this whole thing about he has to do it voluntarily because they can't make anesthetic work on him. Um, and uh, so they arranged this whole plot whereby she would pretend to be dead. Now, her mutant power is to do with um, it's, tactile hypnosis. Uh, um, she's of the sort of Emma Frost empath um, school of, of psychic. I know you should mention that. Well, indeed. Um, but uh, there is actually a point where she tries to influence Victor and he says, your mind games don't work on me, which suggests they wouldn't work on Logan either, which seems to imply that their relationship was entirely natural. genuine yeah. yeah again more depth that you have to really read into it and um was almost unintentional Maybe but so. yeah uh, uh, she she reminds me a little bit of um uh i want to say bridget moynihan what's her name michelle monaghan michelle monaghan she reminds me a little bit of Michelle Monaghan, specifically in Mission Impossible 3, uh, who is, she just comes up as very genuine and, and loving as a person. And, and, and there is a, a sense of loss there as she's killed off. So that at least is a saving grace of this because <clears throat> it manages what uh, X-Men 3 didn't manage to do. Mm. I, they never name her, at least as far as I can, I can tell they don't name her, but her sister was obviously positioned as sort of a prototypical Emma Frost because she does the whole diamond hardening thing. Although, interestingly, there is actually... The, the, you know the woman who said you've never felt any pain as much as this, the Doctor woman in the Weapon X project? Her name was Frost. Just really? Just used the fuck out of everything. Good grief. Okay. Uh, Dr. Carol Frost. Yeah, uh, fortunately, like I say, uh, Emma Frost is never named. You could, I suppose, say, since the January Jones character of Emma Frost uh, was around in 1960 in the early 1960s that this diamond hard girl is her daughter or maybe just a completely unrelated mutant it's feasible kind of feasible mm. yeah. but their their um powers are at least visually um not quite the same because uh, emma frost in first class turns diamond all the way through and also it's like a solid diamond she refracts through the middle. I wouldn't read too much into the effects of this film. Fair point. <laughs> the people doing the effects sure as shit didn't. That's a fair point. Um, yeah, the Three Mile Island incident actually happened March 28th, 1979, over a couple of days, and it, it was uh, um, a, a national incident, and it was... Um, a pretty fucking horrible one as well. Uh, but that um, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that this happened exactly at that point in 79, although the years sort of match up uh, in terms of the fact that young Botox CG Charles turns up looking exactly the same as he did when he would very shortly be going off to meet Gene. I, I suppose it makes sense that Wolverine would then have wandered around for 20 years before they found him in X-Men. That There are two 
coda endings for this. One is the version that we saw where uh, Deadpool's... I call it Deadpool. The thing that was named Deadpool, uh, Weapon XI, uh, its hand sort of creeps out of the rubble and goes and touches its head, and the head wakes up and looks at us and goes, shh. And it's got sort of dark patches around its eyes, by the way, I might have mentioned, which sort of emulate the eyes of the Deadpool mask. And it also has eye beams, like Deadpool doesn't. Anyway, uh, yeah, those that. black patches are a direct result of the eye beams. The first time it uses the eye beams, it scorches around its eyes. Uh huh. Good old physics there. Why doesn't Scott have that then? Because there you go then. Brilliant. But they did. They, 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 they it only had the black patches because it's the same fucking illogic that follows the rest of this movie. Oh, the other one was <clears throat> uh, Wolverine in a bar ordering shots. They say, are you drinking to forget? And he says, I'm drinking to remember. Which is kind of a sad little... We'll just leave Wolverine getting drunk in this bar. Probably the same bar he was getting drunk in in the 60s. Very likely. He wouldn't have been getting drunk, though. Is it like Superman where he needs to drink a lot? His healing factor, as far as I'm aware... I suppose I if tranquilizers don't work on him, then alcohol. Yeah, I can't remember where I've seen this written down, but I'm sure I have seen this somewhere, that basically his healing factor processes alcohol so quickly that he cannot get drunk. Brilliant. So, are you drinking to forget? I literally can't get drunk, sir. So, I'm going to waste some <laughs> money on fire water. I might as well be here with a tap water. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, um... I just like the taste of whiskey. That's how much of a fucking man I am. Um, so, yeah, the, the final killer blow of this film is the adamantium bullet. Uh, I think, in all seriousness, the circumstances of, of Wolverine's memory loss, we can probably just forget it and say, well, that was a shit idea, but the, the end result is actually quite good, which is that Wolverine has left a tragic character unable to remember the woman he loved or the circumstances that brought him there, and he's left wandering the wilderness of the world without roots, without understanding of who he is or anyone that he could ever have been connected to. That is a sad ending, and that actually does work. The means of getting to it, though, is a shitty shorthand. In Origin... Uh, something terrible happens to Rose, and it's Wolverine's fault. And he runs off into the forest to be alone, and uh, just because he can't cope with what's just ter- happened. And a fellow called Smitty comes to uh, uh, find him to ask if he will come back to civilization. And he's forgotten the incident because, and this was the kicker, and it allows us to understand why Wolverine can't remember his past. His brain heals over traumatic experiences as though they are wounds. Which says a great deal about the human experience. And as we go through life and we collect these scars, we are supposed to keep them. We are supposed to remember them. And poor Wolverine is unable to do that. He just has the pain. And that's a wonderful ending to a thought-provoking book. And in this, I'm fairly certain the executive said, we don't understand that shit, so our audience are going to be that stupid too. He hates these cans! Make it a bullet. But, as you said, Sharon, regular bullets didn't work on him when he didn't have adamantium in his skeleton. They shot him over and over again. And Stryker's rationale is, well, I'll just shoot him in in the memory box, and that will blow all those (laughs) memories out of there. There's no way he can grow them back. And it works because, you know, comics. 
Or is this, it works because, you know, movies? Because I, I really think that in this case, the comics outstrip the movies. And do remember, of course, Brian Singer didn't want to do the X-Men comic because he said that comics were an unintelligent form of literature. So anyway, uh, all I can really get from this is um, well done to Hugh Jackman for selling the um, the tragedy of Wolverine at the end, and it really seemed like, again, that he cares about this character. And thank Christ, the Fox execs backed the fuck off for X-Men First Class. I don't know what Matthew Vaughan must have said or done to make it happen, but it's possible that this was such a compromised piece of shit that they actually got the message. Maybe so. So, yeah, I think that'll probably about do it for X-Men Origins colon Wolverine. Anything else about it? Um, <clears throat> no, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I mean, my, my remaining issues with it were sort of all uh, based around the adamantium bullet thing. Um, in fact, Stryker makes a comment uh, when they're about to do the whole adamantium infusing process. Somebody says something like, what, what are you going to do when he comes to and tries to kill you oh we'll just wipe his memory how are you planning on doing that at this stage um and as you say the idea of them going in there with a bullet and trying to cut his memories out specifically it's uh, uh, even if he had him under a brain scanner and could surgically pinpoint there you go that's the bit of his head that stores the memories put a bullet through that you can't guarantee that all he isn't going to remember is strike a kill also i don't know why you've got you've got to put adamantium on on the skeleton of one of your uh special agents why have you got to do that in the first place and if you're going to why go to all this trouble to manipulate and fuck over one guy make him unkillable and then go that was a bad idea what a stupid fucking thing to do if the purpose of getting logan back was to get his healing factor to give to deadpool because for some reason victor's healing factor wouldn't transfer which they do say something along those lines that basically Victor wasn't any good for this process. Oh, because Logan's got a level 10 and Victor's got a level 9. Here. I don't That's know it. what. He's but, super saiyan. But for whatever reason, it didn't work. If all you wanted was the healing factor, why does he need the adamantium skeleton? If you're giving him the adamantium skeleton in order that he can um, kill Victor, which is what Stryker claims, that he wants uh, Logan to, to put Victor down... Why then shoot him in the head with the adamantium bullet that you believe is going to kill him before he's killed Victor? I think he's just, he doesn't know he's think he's going to kill him. He just thinks he's going to wipe his memory so Logan won't be angry. But he could still be angry at, uh, you know, he could still have no memory and the, the mind of a feral creature exactly. and strike out and kill everyone around him. Indeed. It's, it's playing with fire. It's, it's putting, pouring petrol all over your house. I'm going, fire out. I must, must have this, do this special experiment with fire. Mm. And also, if, if you really don't care about Victor Creed and keeping him on as a soldier, and you really do think that you, you probably can't contain Wolverine, you're going to have to kill him, and there's a possibility he might just kill Creed, why not just put fucking adamantium on Creed anyway, just to see if it fucking works? Dude's willing, he wants to do this shit. If he dies, what have you lost? Well, other than a shed load of adamantium. 
Well, no, because you, you oh yeah, I suppose you go then you you then have to keep it liquid, otherwise it's yeah. They've right. said once it sets, you can't use it again. But I mean, they clearly had a reasonable amount. They had enough to do Logan and then Lady Deathstrike and still have a tank full. Also, the, the the heating bill for keeping adamantium liquid for twenty two years. Yeah. That's going to be quite high, isn't it? Although, mind you, I suppose if they had the dam, they probably had a um, wave generator. Hydroelectric? Yeah. <clears throat> so there What's you go. Alkali they, Lake. They were using sustainable power. They have that in their favour. Alkali Lake features in three of the four X-Men films. It's all about fucking Alkali Lake. It's the, they, the they, nexus of X-Men events. They paid for that location. They are damn well going to use it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the whole bullet memory wiping, it... it really scotches the idea of his memories coming back on their own later on as well because if his healing factor has scarred them over too quickly for him to be able to process them which i agree is a, a fantastic uh metaphor and and something that was one of the most interesting things about logan for me for years and years and years it's also um, a really good uh, way of uh, expressing buried trauma yeah absolutely and the idea of but, memories that are so painful you literally can't face them yeah, absolutely. Um, but if those pieces of your physical brain have been ripped out with a bullet, they can't come back. They cannot grow back the same way they were before. Your memory is not in your <clears throat> DNA, as so, we discussed earlier. Yes. So, yeah, here we go, applying physics, rationality, and all this stuff to a film that the Fox execs were fighting to keep as stupid as possible. As well as Frankenstein, there's also a parallel of Jekyll and Hyde, uh, which is actually very similar to the Hulk in terms of the fact that Wolverine is a man with the best of intentions, but the beast is within him. I do find it interesting that there seems to be that opposition in this, where you've got um, Stryker and Victor insisting you're the animal, you have to let the animal out, the animal is you, and then you've got Kayla insisting you're not an animal and ultimately he's got to reconcile the two yeah what he ends up working out to uh, as an ongoing um, way of life is to be the man as much of the time as he possibly can but to let the animal out much like the hulk when needed to see that it has use and it serves a purpose it's not just this horrible shadow that has to be squashed all the time and what it comes down to as well, and because this is something that has been said before, if you like something, sometimes you're willing to let that shit slide. And on that note, <laughs> we'll see you very soon for X-Men First Class. I've been Alex Shaw. 
I've been Sharon Shaw. And adamantium-laced neural, neural handshake, handshake complete. complete. Well, Wolverine, you were against Kitty being a member of the team. What do you think now? So the kid got lucky that don't make her an X-Man. Not yet. Yes, the X-Men have won, but only for now. Magneto is still out there, waiting, planning, plotting the destruction of the human race. But whatever the challenge, whatever the peril, the X-Men will be there. No place to hide. No place to run. No place to run. The mutant game, the mutant game has now begun. X-Men, X-Men, this is the day, this is the day.